There are a lot of specialties within the very broad vocation of software engineering, and all of them are hard to do. Distributed systems engineering is one corner of the discipline that poses a particular set of challenges. What's it like to build a distributed system? What special problems arise? How do you land a job doing it? And that's the conversation on today's episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Hello and welcome to another episode of Streaming Audio. I am your host, Tim Berglund, and I'm delighted to be joined in the virtual studio today by uh, a man who is one of the co-creators of Apache Kafka and a co-founder of Confluent, June Rao. June, welcome to Streaming Audio. Thanks, team. Thanks. Now, a lot of people who follow Kafka know who you are, um, but I know even I don't know much of your story. I'd love to hear just how did you get, uh, how did your career get to be here? Uh, what, where did you get started and, and what was your journey? Yeah, I can talk about it myself. Um, I grew up in- It's easy, right? Yes, <laughs> it should be easy. Yeah, I grew up in China. I finished college in computer science there in, in Beijing. Then I came to US uh, uh, for graduate school. So I spent about five years at Columbia University doing my PhD there. Um, my PhD thesis is in databases. So I like the you know, database part of that, you know, dealing with uh, systems, um, performance optimization, and this kind of stuff. And while, while I was doing my PhD, I did a few internships. And then one of the internships I did uh, was uh, at IBM's uh, Airman Research Lab down in San Jose. Um, so that's actually a group has a little bit of history, uh, in, especially in the database world. So this is actually a place where the relational database technology was invented back in the 1970s. Um, so I so worked with quite a few sort of database legends uh, in that lab where I was doing internship. Uh, I liked that lab. So, so after I yeah. graduated in 2000, um, I took a job there. So, so that's how I started. So I started, I spent about like 10 years in that uh, IBM's research lab. Um, initially, I worked a lot on some of the DB2 stuff. This is actually IBM's uh, relational database technology. Um, but uh, towards uh, sort of the end uh, of uh, my IBM career, I think I started looking into some of the open source software stuff. That's when I got uh, interacted with some of the newer things that's coming out around that time. Initially, some of the Hadoop stuff, then some of the key value store stuff like Cassandra, HBase, uh, and even some of the search index uh, uh, like Lucene and other things. So what I found pretty interesting in that thing is, is I think the way you build system is, 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 is quite different from how DB2, you know, conventional database build their systems. Um, a lot of things we did... Uh, in DB2, you know, it's just trying to optimize very, very hard about the code pass, right? To squeeze in the last 5% performance. Um, as you can imagine, you know, if it's a system that's 20 uh, or 30 years old, it's kind of hard to get that thing in the complex system. Right. A lot of those, a lot of those uh, optimizations have already been made. By that's the right. Time you come around. Yeah. And also the system is more complicated, right? I think when you optimize one component, you have to make sure it doesn't impact other things. Right. So, but a lot of the sort of newer those 
distributed open source software, they took uh, just a slightly different uh, perspective. I think the way they do that is not to like squeeze like the last bit of performance just on individual node performance, but try to build a more scaled out um, distributed architecture. So then now if you want to get some more performance, you know, it's pretty easy, right? You just get more hardware, which is getting cheaper and cheaper over time. So that changed a little bit, you know, how I think about things in software development. Then around 2010, that's when I thought, yeah, I think I, I want to pursue some opportunities outside of IBM. So that's when I got the opportunity to work at uh, LinkedIn. So at that point, um, LinkedIn was just starting to build Kafka. So I was well, I was fortunate to be able to essentially work on Kafka almost from the very beginning um, and at LinkedIn. And then we were able to get it finished and then uh, get it used at LinkedIn. And that turns out to be uh, pretty successful for LinkedIn's usage. And then we open sourced that initially to just GitHub, but uh, eventually to Apache Foundation. And uh, that's when we saw just significant growth of adoption of Kafka uh, which eventually led to the starting of Confluent and uh, the uh, the stream event streaming platform we built uh, off this platform, which leads us rapidly up to the present day. That's right. Um, so you said uh, you said some good things in there, and and by the way, I didn't I didn't realize you were uh, at IBM earlier in your career. These these are things that a good host just research a good host would have done before recording, but I can learn directly from June, just like you can in the listening audience. So that is, that is super cool, especially that lab. I mean, like you said, that's, that's foundational work that, that impacts the life of like every software developer happened there. Yeah, because that's, uh, yeah, that's the part I felt fortunate because, you know, that's, that lab is not that big, it's, you know, about 20 to 30 people, Yeah, but that's a lab with like a big uh, sort of concentration of just uh, the brain powers in the database area. You know, I got to be able to talk to, um, you know, inventors of uh, SQL, early oh. inventors of the, like the recovery mechanism, uh, algorithm, and uh, people who did the like initial version of uh, parallel or distributed uh, version of the database. So I learned a lot from those people. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine you did. Um, you, uh, this isn't really a question, but you just you talked about the transition for you from uh, relational database developer to distributed database developer, and that uh, you know all that stuff that was happening around 2010 and the few years before in the open source world. And it was an interesting observation that you know in the in the relational database world, which is fundamentally a single server game. Right, you can do multi-core things, and multi-core was starting to become a thing around then. Um, but it, you know, the, the technology fundamentally relies on. At some point, there's a lock on a data structure, and you can you can take a lock on that data structure, and therefore then you can do things with with certain guarantees. So that whole game, like you said, is all about optimizing code paths and how where can I get another five percent? And that sounds like a grind. You know, like I could see where you could maybe get tired of that. Um, and the approach we take in the distributed systems world is it's okay. It can be Java and maybe, you know, there could have been 
uh, native languages that were faster, or we could not contend with garbage collection or, you know, whatever. A, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff was Java, like, like, uh, or at least JVM, like Kafka. But the approach in the distributed things is just scale out. Like it's okay if the single node performance isn't optimal. Um, anyway, I'm just kind of reflecting on that. And even in the, the NoSQL space that has played out, there's, there's Cassandra and there's the uh, native you know, C++ version, SciladDB, which is like the, the Cassandra with fast single node performance. So it's weird how that, that debate still kind of plays out there. But anyway, uh, taking a long yeah, time. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I should just clarify. I think um, understanding of the performance, right, and then care about performance, even on a single node, is still important. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, even if you build, even if you are building distributed system, as long as it stores data, it retrieves data, it's actually very useful to be understand, to be able to understand your code paths, you know, what's your critical paths, how does it use this disk, uh, how does it store the data in an efficient way? Right. right? I mean, so read, read so the release notes help. if you don't if you don't believe it. I mean, that's that stuff gets that's done. right. <laughs> that's right. So I think I think what distributed system helped is because of now you have this uh, scaled out capability. You don't have to over optimize your system um, just to get a throughput you want, but at a cost of complicating your design. Right. Right. There you go. That's a I think a much more precise way to put it. Um, mm -hmm. And you also maybe replace the grind of relentless code path optimization in all cases for the grind of now you're a distributed systems developer. And so you've inherited a new set of problems, which is kind of what I want to talk about is, um, you know, you made that transition to being a distributed systems engineer and your, I mean, your presence on the podcast here today is a part of a series on distributed systems engineering. So I kind of want to talk to you about that. You know, you've made the jump and now you, interview and hire and lead uh, and work with a number of distributed systems engineers. So what really is the difference? I mean, what, what makes a distributed systems engineer that and not something else? I think first of all, I think they're just the good trade of, you know, just most of the engineers, right? I think a lot of engineers, I think, you know, you just, you have to have clear logic, right? So you have to have, you know, good high-level logic uh, when you do the design. And then when you do the implementation, then a lot of those is, you know, having good practice, having uh, sound logic, and then be careful, you know, where uh, with the code you are written. I think uh, for the distributed system engineer, I think what's making that a little bit harder is a lot of the coordination, right, across different servers. So, so there are different models there, you know, do you have like a centralized coordinator to coordinate everything or do you do the peer-to-peer -peer thing? Each sort of have its own challenging. So, so that a lot of challenges, you know, at, at any given time, then you have to reason about which state you are in, right? How, and how that is uh, consistent or different from the state in other servers. So that's part of the uh, things to make that uh, a little bit tricky because you know you not only you have to think about the the local thing that you are working on, but the impact that you would have on other related uh, uh, nodes in the service. The evolution of state and the reasoning about state is a topic that has come up in our previous discussions on the podcast about what it means to be a distributed systems engineer. So 
that state problem uh, seems to be a rather central thing. Um, what, when you are hiring, uh, when you're thinking about what makes a good distributed systems engineer, when you look at your own development uh, in this discipline, what is what are the the properties like? What skills should I be good at? Yeah, I think uh, of course you know there are lots of uh, aspects, but personally for me, uh, I'm mostly looking uh, at like uh, three things. These are the things I think I particularly value, and uh, I think I also see that in a lot of other sort of uh, good distributed engineers. The first thing I would just say, uh, just uh, uh, the curiosity. You know, this is the curiosity of knowing the code and knowing it uh, really, really well in detail, especially the core parts, right? Um, so, so this uh, can happen when you write a code, but can also happen when you read a lot of time, you know, existing codes, you know, through reviews and other things. Um, if there are things that you don't understand, uh, you try to uh, ask around, especially experts in this area, right? Uh, what this logic means, does that match your expectation? And the same thing applies um, just to the operational part of that. You know, when you see a issue in production, uh, are you curious in terms of understanding what's really causing it all the way to the bottom of it so that you can fully explain the situation? So, so that's, I would say, probably the first thing. The second thing what I value a lot in a lot of the distributed engineers is uh, they care about uh, not only the development of code, which of course is often a given, but also the operational part of the system. Um, so a lot of the engineers think they would uh, 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 they would not be shying away from like on course. You know, they want to be part of the operational thing. And uh, when there are issues, they try to figure out exactly uh, what's causing the issue. And uh, as part of this, I think it's just I think a lot of the skills they have to have, right? Is uh, of course uh, primarily they are developer, but to be good at operations, they also have to be a bit broader, just in terms of the whole system. So, so that includes things like understanding a little bit how the network layer works. Right. Uh, what does uh, TCP connect? Uh, timeout means sometimes. Uh, what does uh, RAID means? You know the difference between RAID five versus RAID ten in terms of performance and uh, storage need. And uh, things like uh, Java uh, profiler, right? Garbage control, uh, uh, garbage control, and uh, where is the hotspot through through profiling? And uh, sometimes you know even Lower layer, uh, uh, lower layer than uh, the TCP, even at the network layer. You know, how do you uh, figure out if uh, if there's a potential issue due to um, like uh, 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 like denial service because you 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 are being rate limited through some of the low level tracing uh, at the network layer. So, so that's sort of the second thing, which is you know a lot of the uh, uh, operational aspects uh, of the distributed system is probably also hard, and it's, but it's all equally important. So, being able to um, 
have the ability to reason about operational part of system, that's also very important, I think, to me. And those those things you're describing there are all. Uh, it occurs to me what they have in common is that they are lower levels of abstraction. There are APIs that wrap all those things that a normal developer, normal, <laughs> like distributed systems developers are abnormal, right. right? You know what I mean? That's right. Uh, a non, an application developer, uh, like the kind of code I, I uh, was writing when I was uh, working as a developer. As an application developer, you have APIs for those. You, you know, you're using Spring and annotating a method uh, so that REST stuff happens. And you, you're aware that there's an HTTP uh API there and and that there's TCP under the covers and you know you have to know some response codes when things go wrong but you know you're operating uh, probably two layers of abstraction up from there likewise the file system you know you've got uh, some kind of file API uh, like in Java you've got Java IO file or Java NIO or whatever but you're all of those are higher levels of abstraction which are necessary for people to be able to write applications but what you're saying is in, in the distributed systems world, uh, you can't, you, you have to know those things. That's right, because I think, yeah, I think from an application developer's perspective, a lot of uh, what you need, right, uh, provided is sort of given in the aspect, uh, the description provided by the API, right? So you sort of know what it's capable of doing and uh, what it entails you to do. But I think a lot of the, sort of system engineer or distributed system engineer challenges, you know, a lot of details are hidden inside those APIs, right? Because a lot of things can happen to serve a particular API request. And uh, if it doesn't um, work as expected, uh, whether it's performance or other things, then you have to deep deeper into all those uh, potentially related components. Right. right. Uh, somebody has to answer for that. Yeah, so the last part I would say, I think, in terms of a trade, uh, you know, just uh, being open-minded. So I particularly like that quote from Bill Joy, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Intel. So he once had this quote saying that it doesn't matter um, what problem you are trying to solve. Sometimes, a lot of times, the best person um, to solve a particular problem often works outside of your company. So, you know, you know Kafka, uh, st uh, we started uh, as open source project and we continue to make that open source. I think one of the things I just learned through the interaction with the open source community is just that even though uh, personally for me, I think I uh, had a sort of a uh, deeper background in Kafka, but when I try to do reviews or interacting with other people as trying to develop new features, I find myself, I learn a lot just from all those people in the community. Um, sometimes, you know, they even if they may not have been involved in Kafka um, that long, but sometimes they, they actually share pretty good perspective uh, just based on the background they had. I think a lot of that, if you are just being a little bit open-minded, you end up with a better or simpler solution uh, just by listening to others. Excellent advice. And a uh, good point about when you're in the environment of an open source project, uh, you do have a community. I mean, that's not just people, well, it is people working for other companies and maybe, maybe those companies are paying them to work on the open source thing. I mean, that's, that's uh, fairly typical, but, um, the, the, the reason that network of people knows each other and interacts with each other all relates to their involvement with the project. And 
if you give them uh, a place to talk like a mailing list or Slack organization or something like that, um, then, you know, that community is no longer an abstract thing, but it's a very concrete thing, a concrete place where you can go to, to ask questions and get insights and be surprised at how many people there are smarter than you are and, and that whole thing. Yeah. In the end, in, in the end, that uh, makes the projects better. Longer yes, term. it does. It does. Cause you can't, you know, you're a company like Confluent, you're, you're trying to employ lots of Kafka talent and lots of distributed systems engineering talent. Cause we're, you know, we're building a event streaming platform on top of Apache Kafka. And so naturally we want to be good at those things and, you know, you're good at those things. And that's, that's kind of what this podcast is all about. Um, but you know, you can only employ so many people and there's this whole ecosystem of equally brilliant people out there. And so giving them a place to interact and support each other and get to know each other is just hugely valuable. And obviously that's a passion of mine. I mean, that's part of what I do here is, is, uh, developer relations and, and, uh, community. So I'm, I'm glad to see that be a thing. That's great. Yeah. Um, so from, if you remember, uh, the, your transition from database developer in, I'll just say the most probably world leading, uh, elite database development lab, um, in the known universe, uh, going from there to, uh, becoming a distributed systems engineer, working on, on Kafka at LinkedIn. What are the things that you ran into as difficult and that, that felt like lessons learned? What did you, uh, maybe you struggled with something. I mean, what, what was that like? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think when I made, uh, my career change right from IBM to LinkedIn, uh, it's actually a rather big change for me. Well, first of all, I think I moved from a hundred thousand person company to a 600 ish person company, um, just in terms of size. And I also moved from research, which was a lab I was in to, to development. So both are actually big changes for me. Um, but for me, I think at that point, um, what I think I valued, you know, is just, uh, the, uh, first of all, is just, uh, the experience to be able to, um, see what you build, get used, uh, as a uh, firsthand experience. Right. So I seldom get that opportunity at IBM because it's a big, uh, uh, company. It's also, um, a company with a product that has like long release cycles, right? So, you know, you put out release, you do, you add a feature in a release that's only uh, getting released maybe two or three years later. So, um, and then after that, because you are so decoupled from your end users, you seldom hear any feedback from them. So, so what I wanted, you know, just to be able to be at a place that, okay, I can build some interesting stuff, but also see a bit how users are using that thing so they can have those more direct feedback. And I clearly get that uh, at LinkedIn. Yeah, because a lot of that initial Kafka building was was really, I mean, you were building data infrastructure for use internally. So that's right. You're building it, somebody's using it, you talk to them, game changing. Yeah, so I think in terms of a hard problem, I think, yeah, there, there, there are problems that's hard sort of just on the, on the technical side. I think a lot of those are sort of operational related issues. This happens probably in our early development and also happens when we wrote out some of the earlier features. So, so I'll just like provide like maybe a more anecdotal thing. So that's probably 2000, uh, 
12-ish. Um, so that's when we just released like a new version of Kafka that supports uh, like replication. So, so then the issue we have, you know, just uh, starting from some time, you know, every Wednesday, uh, 10 a.m., what we'll see, you know, just we'll have, see like a, a, a window, like five minutes, where all our clients who are talking to that shared coffee clusters starts hitting timeout. And then they will keep reconnecting, and then which will add more load to the server. Um, so it will be in this sort of a uh, uh, weird state for just about 10, uh, five minutes. And then without us doing anything, um, everything just uh, uh, switch back to normal um, afterwards. And this happens every week, exactly at Wednesday at uh, huh. 10 a.m. Yeah, so this puzzled us quite a lot. I think, you know, it's just from looking at the volume of the data, it's not like at that time there's like a big increase, right, in terms of volume or anything. Uh, so it, it does took us quite a lot of time just to figure out what's causing this. Um, so what we did uh, to, to investigate this issue, you know, just we look at all the like metrics we have, right, uh, at Kafka. And uh, around that time, and we do see that some of the latency metric, you know, like uh, the time we spend serving like produce request, or maybe sometimes, you know, consumers is longer. Um, but uh, we just don't know what's causing that to be long. And uh, just from uh, some of the um, JVM metrics, and then maybe even just a, a system metric like CPU, it doesn't seem there's like a big change yeah. in anything around that time. So, uh, so what we uh, what we uh, discovered in the end is after some point, um, what we just realized just from from the fire system, it just we noticed that around that time, there happens to be a lot of fire deletions around that window. That's one of the sort of the interesting that we noticed that. So then later on, I think we look at some of the configuration um, in Kafka. We just realized, okay, at that point, Kafka has this uh, property that controls how often we roll a log, you know, if the log hasn't been like uh, actively uh, written so that it will hit the size limit. So that default value is uh, seven days. And we also have another configuration, which is, you know, controlling the, the retention, you know, just how long you keep those data in Kafka. And the default setting for a lot of topics is also seven days. So what ends up happening is uh, uh, around that, you know, Wednesday at 10 a.m. thing, a lot of segments have been rolled, which will cause them to be deleted like seven days later at exactly the same time. So... Because there are so many, uh, there are probably around thousands of those files like are deleted around that window, so so that actually added a lot of metadata pressure in our underlying file system. So even though there's not a lot of additional new data, just because of metadata pressure, that actually slowed down a lot of the IOs in our system, which essentially um, put pressure back to our clients. And the reason why, you know, it lasted like for five minutes, you know, it just, I think we have this cluster which often gets like rolling restarted around the same time. So then that same effect 
will happen just gradually from one server to the other until the whole cluster is exercised. So, so that's actually one of the hard things for us to 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 figure out and uh, uh, and discover. Um, took us probably uh, multiple weeks just to get uh, there and done because you know to 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 do some analysis you have to wait another week for this to happen again. Um, but once uh, we identify the issue, the fix is actually pretty simple. So we just add a little bit of jittering effect when we do log rolling or doing the log deletes so that we can smooth out the metadata overhead over some period of time. Yes. So you, you weren't, in essence, uh, DOSing the metadata management of the file system. That's right. That's kind of what you're That's showing. Right. Excellent. Go on. What's what's another? Uh, these are these are great stories. Another lesson. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's sort of more like just uh, like operational. Uh, and I think there are quite a few of those. I think just because of you know they are distributed system in nature and they are large scales. Um, and often I think it, uh, it does take time to figure out those. I think another thing uh, that's that's pretty hard. I think uh, in the days of LinkedIn, I think it just I think the sort of a scale of the the data and the customers I think we have to manage. Once we deployed Kafka at LinkedIn, that became essentially the hub for pretty much all the microservices at LinkedIn. Around that time, there are like hundreds uh, of those microservices. So essentially, they are all our customers. So, so then we only have like a relatively small develop development plus like SRE team to manage all the Kafka clusters at LinkedIn. So the challenge, of course, in the early days is uh, because Kafka is used pretty much in every application and then often is like the entry point, how they interact with the data. If there's any issue in the application, the first thing they would think of, of blaming right. is Kafka. So, so, you know, just that's a lot of the time we spend is just to answering those applications uh, where they may have suspicion um, there's a problem with Kafka. Often, you know, we just, after some investigation, we just have to point out, okay, the issue is not in Kafka, it's somewhere else. Uh, maybe sometimes it's, you know, it's an application problem and uh, the application owner has to fix it. So um, it's just, I think, having to, to, to deal with all those usage at scale is pretty challenging. So what we uh, helped a lot in the end is, so we built this uh, tool called auditing tool. Now I think at Confluent, we are, per, uh, we are sort of generalizing that concept and build a similar tool in uh, our product offering is called Control Center. So what this tool does essentially is just to add a little bit like instrumentation in all the publishers as well as in all the consumers as they are publishing and then reading the data. And then we collect all those uh, statistics of those instrumentation and uh, build a service of that. So with this service, then we can in real time check whether the, how, the, how the data is flowing through all the publishers all the way to our consumers. We can tell you know, what's the percentage of data coverage, whether there's any data delay or uh, data missing, and then how late the consumer is with respect to, to the publisher. 
And this is actually built as a dashboard. Everybody in the company can check that. So with this, this actually helped a lot. So now if uh, an application has an issue, right? Let's say they have an issue for a particular topic and they think it's a Kafka problem. Often now answer, you know, just go check that dashboard because that dashboard has that uh, monitoring and uh, for the instrument, instrumented data for all the topics at LinkedIn across potentially all the uh, cons uh, consumers. We can just say, okay, um, is your consumer up there, right? Uh, is that delayed or not uh, from a Kafka's perspective? And if so, are you the only consumer being delayed? Because if you are the only one, chances are the delay is probably caused by your application, not the infrastructure at Kafka. Uh, but if everybody is delayed, then we can take a closer look because that may be something that's related to server. I think that just, just having that uh, dashboard, having that tooling around the system and make that globally accessible helped reduce a lot of the load we have early on. Awesome. Tell me about the role of simplicity in the life of a distributed systems engineer. Yeah, I think that's actually uh, also interesting. That's sort of one of the things uh, I also learned uh, along the way. Um, I think um, a lot of what I, I learned from the literature and also sort of learned from other uh, engineers, you know, you just you want to, of course, um, uh, strive for simplicity, right? Um, the simpler you have, the easier it is to build uh, and then the easier to, uh, to debug probably and then probably the easier it is uh, to monitor other things. So a lot of the design and uh, implementation, I think, in Kafka, I think, especially in the early days, what we strive for is try to make it as simple as possible. But I think over time, what I learned is, I think, simply, sort of ultimate simplicity is not necessarily the ultimate goal uh, or the best thing to have. What you want is, essentially, you want to have, simplicity, uh, have simple stuff, but not at the uh, at a cost of having uh, having you sacrificing in some other aspects. So I'll just uh, provide like maybe a concrete example to illustrate on that. I think there are quite a uh, few examples we have learned in this space. Um, one of the things I think uh, uh, if you are familiar with Kafka, um, you will know in Kafka Consumer, we have this model called the group consumption which allows multiple instances of consumer to jointly subscribe to a topic or multiple topics as a group. So then we have this distributed framework to divide up the data among those uh, uh, subscription instances uh, evenly. And uh, we also monitor the liveness of those instances. If any of them goes down or some new ones joined, we'll trigger this rebalance protocol to make sure that the data is uh, balanced again with the new set of members. So when we try to design that, uh, we know we have to have some protocol between the client and server to coordinate this behavior, right? Because in the end, they have to be jointly agree on the final assignment uh, for the data um, of those topic partitions uh, in the same group. So initially, what we try to do is try to, we try to use just one round of remote request protocols between the client and server. Because it was a, that's simple, right? Uh, that's a simpler thing uh, that we can do. 
So we try to squeeze as much as we can so that we can make all the decisions just in one round of this RPC between the client and server. And it's, in the end, we sort of quite, we sort of figured out a way of doing that, but it does have some implications. So one of the implications is uh, this actually makes it uh, harder to debug. For example, because we only have like limited round of communication, the, the server side actually doesn't know the final assignment of those uh, uh, topic partitions among those instances, or the clients knows. But since we don't have another round of communication, the server actually doesn't know that. So this is actually one of the impact, and then there are a few others. So uh, we just think, try to thought about it in a hard and hand, but you know, we can't get over of this limitation. And in the end, what we settled on upon is, uh, is not the simplest form. We settled on a two-round of RPC between the client and server to complete the rebalance in this uh, group consumption model. So what this gives us is a lot more flexibility. First of all, this actually allowed the debugging and monitoring a lot easier because now the server does have the information about all assignments, which is actually really helpful when you want to figure out uh, some of the performance issues or potential bugs. The second thing is it actually allowed us to, to, uh, to plug in different policies of how you want to do the assignment. So it's not just limited to a subset of the assignment policy that uh, you can rely upon uh, those distributed consensus. So it actually can be applicable to an arbitrary way of assigning the system. So this actually made the, the group protocol for those consumption uh, much more general and much more powerful. So just looking back, I think to me, just um, in the end, I think that, that model, by the way, I think at, the, at, this, uh, at this moment, you know, after two to three years of working on that, I think worked pretty well. Um, so looking back, I think what I think I uh, learned from this is you know, just sometimes um, the ultimate simplicity is not always necessarily the best. I think you have to look at within the context. I think you want to uh, get to certain level of simpl simplicity, but without having your hands tied up, uh, too tied up for a lot of other things. This can be expressiveness or uh, ease of use or ease of monitoring of debugging. Very well put. Um, there's, I, I'm kind of of two minds on this. I mean, having read code that other people have written and even the code that I've written, um, I think our collective drive for simplicity maybe is not as great as we would like to think it is. Uh, I mean, a lot of people make some really Baroque things that are just needlessly complex. But we definitely say, like our stated belief as software developers is that simplicity is a, is a priority. Whether we live that out or not uh, is another question. But I think you're, you know, this sort of mature approach you're advocating here reminds me of um, Occam's razor. You know, the, the way Occam's razor, that principle is normally stated, um, refers to a, a medieval monk named William of Occam who, well, We'll get to what he said. What most people say when they're talking about Occam's razor is, well, the simplest explanation is the one that's true or something like that, um, which is not what Occam said. What Occam said is that one ought not to multiply entities needlessly. Uh, 
which is a very different statement, right. right? Needlessly is the key point there. You you shouldn't make something yeah. more complex. And he had a very particular philosophical context in mind uh, when he said that, but you shouldn't That's make right. things more complex than you need to. But like, don't, don't, don't lose it here. We don't want to break things or, or um, unnecessarily limit the, the future evolvability or current behavior of the system in a drive for simplicity. Yeah. So I have another example on that just in the Kafka land. I think that's also related to the consumer side. So, uh, so one of the things I think uh, we're trying to do in the Kafka consumer is we try to reduce the number of background threads we have in the consumer. So we thought, okay, it wouldn't be easier if the user threads who is consuming the events, that's the only thread who is driving everything. So this will be the thread who will be using, who, who will be responsible for processing all the data once you get those events. But that's also the thread who will be driving the communication between the client and the uh, and the brokers potential multiple of them and then multiplex mandos. So so that's what we we had initially, um, which uh, um, definitely has the merit that you know I think fewer threads you have to manage in the application probably the better. But what we realized um, later on is because of this single thread model it actually complicates a little bit uh, how. Uh, how the application interacts with the server, because one of the uh, main issue we realize, you know, is even though Kafka is designed for like real time, some sometimes when you apply that in application, sometimes applications have some downstream dependencies, and uh, in the case when there's like high volume of data, it actually may take some time for them to finish processing all those events um, once they get them, and that time can vary. And it's 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 kind of hard to have to set like a static session timeout to accommodate for all those use cases. So once the first version of this uh, sort of single thread consumer is out, I think the common thing we have seen from a lot of users is uh, uh, they see a lot of the timeout of their consumer session. I think when we looked into that, a lot of the cases is not you know Kafka is itself the lib or the library is doing some actual work. Is really the application is doing something that sometimes is not fully in their control. So we iterate on that like a few times. In the end, we just realize, okay, so may, uh, the, maybe we just should uh, just uh, 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 give up on that uh, single threaded model because that actually, uh, even though it adds some additional threat, but it will make the system much more easier and flexible to build. If you had allowed multiple threads in the consumer. Okay, which would be a, that'd be a huge change. That's right. Well, what we did is, you know, you know, we just add one more thread, which is essentially a background thread that allows the consumer library to do the things like heartbeating to the server. So it is actually separate, separated from the thread who is doing all the processing of those events. So this way, I think we sort of decoupled the processing of those events from the liveness detection of the client. So they are sort of uh, independent. So even though we added a little bit more complexity in terms of like managing those different threads, but architecture-wise, this actually made it uh, a lot easier 
to build applications using this uh, consumer li- new consumer library because uh, it's more stable. Um, it's easier to 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 understand whether the issue is in the application versus in the library itself. That makes a whole lot of sense. That's definitely a trade off of of complexity for just kind of sanity elsewhere because you know you have another thread, but now a lot of things work better. I mean that that having those having heartbeat and consumption in the the same thread led to some well-known problems. Um, another question, tell me about usability. Uh, some people say user facing design, but what, where do you think usability enters into being a distributed systems engineer? And I ask that because it's not something that people normally think of, uh, but do you think there's a relationship? Yeah. Yeah. That's also a good question. I think that's sort of another sort of lesson. I think I learned, uh, among those years, you know, we're working on, on Kafka and some other distributed system. Which is, as as a developer, right? If you are a developer of a distributed system, I think you have a lot of a lot of knowledge of all the components of the system, uh, how they work internally, um, and uh, what's the meaning, and then what's the trade off those uh, uh, different components. But I think sometimes you know when you uh, when you build a system for the user to use, right? You have to define some user-facing uh, properties so that the user can understand. So often, I think as a engineer, uh, as a distributed system engineer or developer, you tend to sort of uh, design those user interface based on the knowledge you have as you and as you understand uh, how the internal system works. But um, sometimes I think that may not be the best thing for the user. Um, because it just adds probably too much complexity or giving too much information to the user that they don't necessarily need to know. So I'll just give a, like a more specific example of that. So one of the things in the in Kafka when we uh, this also uh, uh, a few years back when we tried to add an, uh, a new property in the producer because one of the things. Uh, the producer does, right? If you know how the producer works in Kafka, it's actually fairly involved and has multiple components. So if a user try to send the event through the producer API, it actually has to go through multiple phases. So first thing it has to do is it has to be added into this uh, in-memory buffer pool the producer manages if it has space. If it doesn't have space, it will potentially block that for some configured amount of time. And once you you are in this buffer, we typically wait a little bit so that you can hopefully accumulate enough bytes so that they can group together to be sent to the server. So this is actually to improve the performance. So so once you have enough uh, bytes uh, to form a group, we take it out and then we send it to the server. Now on the server side. Depending on your acknowledgement mode, maybe you know you have to wait until the data is fully replicated to multiple brokers, or maybe you know just a single broker. So, uh, and uh, if it's uh, waiting for multiple brokers, then you are also sensitive to the delay in potentially the communication among those different brokers. Then, when this comes back, the producer will get an acknowledgement. Um, so, as you can see, this whole uh, latency uh, of publishing an event is tied to the availability of the memory, the amount of batching you wanted to do, 
your acknowledgement mode uh, and the interaction, uh, the communication between the client and server and then potentially among servers themselves. This is pretty involved. So uh, what we want is uh, is to add like a, a timeout uh, in the producer such that um, if things are not going well, I think uh, the client can get uh, notified earlier so that you instead of like having to wait forever. Then the question is, you know, is what timeout we should be giving back to the client. In some of the earlier dis- discussions, I think a lot of the uh, discussion is, okay, earlier we had a request timeout already on the producer side, which essentially controls, you know, once you send a request, right, from the client to the server, how long you wait before you actually get an acknowledgement uh, from the server. But then that's not enough because earlier I mentioned the events could also be sitting in the producer side buffer waiting for more data to come in to be batched, right? So some of the delay could be because of that. So our initial thinking was, okay, maybe we should just add another timeout, which is, you know, how long this event is like waiting in the buffer, right? Um, and then, uh, and then uh, this, of course, has impact with other things uh, with three tries. So as we are discussing so this feature, so what we realize in the end is just from the end user, if you are building like a new application and you want to publish some events to Kafka, right? From that user's perspective, they don't have all the knowledge of the underlying implementation details in Kafka. You know, what are all the stages this event has to go through and uh, what are some of the parameters that's involved with that. All they care about is just from the time I send the event to the time I get an acknowledgement. How long I, I'm comfortable of waiting for that. Now, how that time is distributed uh, or segmented into those components is really up to uh, the library or the, or the system to deal with, but uh, which can have you know multiple separate the uh, parameters, but just from the user perspective, all they care about is really just one number, uh, which is the from the time when the event is generated to the time and acknowledgement is received. So, uh, so in the end, I think after some discussion, we just realized just from user perspective, right? That's actually the user-facing configuration we should be exposing instead of just adding more and more detailed uh, parameter for each of the segments um, that we have in our implementation. And in the end, I think that uh, uh, that feature seems to be uh, much more well-received uh, than we would have uh, gone like otherwise. Because without this feature earlier, what we have you know, is every time we add a new separate timeout, a few months later, some other people will be asking for another timeout because there's another component of the latency that's not accommodated by some of the existing ones. But with this, I think um, it's much easier for the user to use because um, they just care about, from their perspective, how long they are waiting to uh, to wait. Right. And I would add to this, okay, so these are, these are product decisions that you're making and they're one way of describing them is they're highly technical things, but they're fundamentally product surface area usability decisions, which normally 
for an application developer, when there are usability decisions to be made, there's usually a designer or a product manager, or there's somebody in the loop who focuses on that and lets the developer focus on implementation and, you know, their own, their own craft. Uh, and someone else kind of has the calling of making sure this thing is, is pleasant to use and understandable. So the user you're talking about is another developer. That's the thing. When you're a distributed systems engineer, you're in some sense, you're making pipes, you're making plumbing. Now the pipe analogy applies particularly well when it comes to Kafka, but you know, you're, you're always making infrastructure that some other developer uses. And so, you know, on the one hand, that's nice because you're also a developer. And so you can think clearly about what constitutes good usability for other developers. But, um, this is, I think a key thing about being a distributed systems engineer that you have to be thinking about usability. You have to, because this is, these are, these are not simple tools. Generally distributed systems are hard and you want to make them comprehensible for other developers. And the buck stops with you. There's no PM or designer going to help you. Uh, you're the one who knows. That's right. Yeah. Because I think, yeah, I think as distributed engineers, right. I think you are pretty good. I think a lot of the internal details, but I think when you design at least APIs or interfaces or user-facing configurations, you sort of have to put the application developer's mind in place to see you know, what uh, they would think from their perspective when interacting with your system. My guest today has been Jun Rao. Jun, thanks for being a part of Streaming Audio. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks for, uh, for having me here. And there you have it. Hey, it's Kafka Summit time again, and you get another discount code for listening all the way to the end. Kafka Summit London is coming up on April 27th and 28th of 2020, and you can get 30% off your registration if you go to kafka-summit.org and use the discount code KSL20AUDIO during checkout. Just enter KSL20AUDIO while registering at kafka-summit.org, and that 30% off is all yours. I would love to see you there. And anyway, I hope this podcast was helpful to you. If you want to discuss the podcast or ask a question, you can reach out to me at at TLBerglund on Twitter. That's at T-L-B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D. Or you can leave a comment on a YouTube video or reach out to us in community Slack. There's a Slack sign-up link in the show notes if you want to join that group. And while you're at it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. If you subscribe through iTunes, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover the podcast, which we think is a good thing. Thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>